We've had a great record today of starting on time. So uh, let's continue that. We're a little bit late here, but not all that terrible. It's uh, striking that uh, in, throughout our day, many of the several times the next panel has been foreshadowed in the panel before it, and I thought that's what happened also with public opinion. You, you heard a lot about the concerns about the future. Well, this panel is uh, purely about not just the future, but also new and emerging issues, questions, and threats to free speech, to First Amendment issues. And we have a distinguished panel to talk about these issues, uh, some of which you might not, are not, don't fit really maybe in the traditional uh, framework of First Amendment jurisprudence, but certainly are something that should be discussed. Uh, yeah. we, uh, we are, uh, as you saw with the discussions of uh, the tech companies, we're at a new era that is certainly going to be uh, at the center of our attention, I think, in many ways. So let's get started. Um, we're going to begin today, uh, this afternoon, with Matthew Feeney, my colleague here at Cato, who is a policy analyst at this institution. Before coming to Cato, Matthew worked at Reason Magazine as assistant editor of Reason.com. He also worked at the American Conservative, uh, the Liberal Democrats, and the Institute of Economic Affairs. He somehow missed the socialist. I'm not sure that, how that happened. Um, Matthew received both his BA and MA in philosophy from the University of Reading in England. I'm delighted to have him participating today, one of my really favorite colleagues here at Cato. Matthew. Well, thank you, John, for that very kind introduction. If any of you are interested in how you can have an organization called the Liberal Democrats and the American Conservative in the same resume, I'm happy to explain uh, in the uh, reception. Uh, I've been assured that this is relatively idiot-proof, so I hope that it will work. Uh, and I'll, I'll begin by uh, thanking you all for, for making it. I know that uh, this is the last panel. Thank you for making it to uh, the last. These can be a bit of a slog sometimes, I know, from personal experience. And uh, I'm especially pleased to be here on a First Amendment panel, despite the fact that I'm not a, a lawyer or a journalist. Uh, but I accepted John's invitation to speak about surveillance and speech. I spend most of my time here at the Cato Institute worrying and discussing the very busy intersection of civil liberties and new technology. So what I thought I would do is I would discuss with you some of the law enforcement technologies that I see with us now and also around the corner and how I think they do threaten First Amendment protected activities. I also want to talk about the research that has been done on the effect of surveillance on speech. Uh, but before Getting into all that, I do want to make sure that we put surveillance in context. There are many reasons why you might choose not to speak. Uh, surveillance is hardly the only one. We could, for instance, suffer from social pressure. We feel us, that we will be running against our peer group if we express certain opinions. So this is especially true if you hold minority opinions. If you, for instance, believe that Harry Potter is overrated or that mushrooms should probably be illegal, the worst thing that could probably happen is that you might lose uh, a friend or two, or you might uh, be cast out of your peer group. But if you hold a radical or minority political or religious beliefs, the cost, the social cost could be a lot higher. You could potentially lose your job or find employment very difficult. But I want to emphasize that I also think that social pressure acts on people who have majority views. 
if you have a majority view that uh, you share with the rest of your uh, countrymen or colleagues, but there's nonetheless a dedicated but violent minority, you can still have a situation where speech is stifled. Uh, this was tragically, of course, highlighted by the murder of the Charlie Hebdo editors in January 2015. But there's, of course, not just social pressure, there's also the law. Uh, governments all across the, the world pass laws against certain kinds of speech, uh, not just speech, but also membership of particular political parties. But for me, I'm going to be talking about surveillance. And it's really impossible to talk about surveillance uh, post-2013 without talking about Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor who released massive amounts of information to journalists concerning the activities of America's intelligence community. In June 2013, these revelations began to be published. And among the most controversial of the programs revealed was the PRISM program. This is a internet communication surveillance program. And what we saw after the release of information about PRISM is there was a self-reported chilling effect among some people. So for example, Pen America conducted a survey a few months afterwards uh, of more than 520 American writers. And they found, for instance, that almost a quarter of them deliberately avoided certain topics in phone or email conversations. Pew also did a post-Snowden survey. Uh, here they found that 18% of Americans who are aware of the surveillance programs changed the way that they uh, used email. I particularly like the, the Pew survey because it includes some rather interesting snippets from respondents. Uh, I don't want to read through all of them, but here you have someone who said, I can't joke about stuff that would be taken as a threat. Someone else said, somewhat concerning to look up certain information on, on search engines since it may appear suspicious even if my reason is pure curiosity. The Penn survey and the Pew survey are interesting, but they're not exactly conclusive. We, we don't have from these surveys a law that uh, surveillance revelations will prompt a, a chilling effect. What you ideally want to look for is data pre-Snowden and post-Snowden to try and track uh, or to isolate a causal relationship. And that's exactly what uh, Alex Matthews from Digital Fourth and Catherine Tucker at MIT tried to do by analyzing uh, Google search terms and analyzing that over 2013. So what they did is they collected 245 search terms to analyze. And the source of these terms are kind of interesting. So the first one is a list that they took from DHS. DHS actually keeps a list of search terms that it keeps an eye out for on social media. Uh, here's a part of the list. Uh, it's rather small, but you can see things like assassination, uh, bacteria, burn, disaster management, things like that. So they took these terms. They also got a neutral list of terms used uh, when searching for a lot of US local businesses, the so-called neutral terms. Uh, but they also did a crowdsourcing exercise to isolate embarrassing terms that have nothing to do with national security. Uh, and I'll share a few of them, mostly because they're funny. Uh, so. Uh, included on this list are, are Honey Boo Boo, uh, my, my Little Pony, Nickelback, Nose Job, <laughs> Sexual Addiction, Suicide, Viagra, Weed, and World of Warcraft. Uh, there are many more, and I wish I had the whole time to read the entire list, but, but I don't. So, so getting these 245 terms together, the researchers then asked an independent panel 
to rank how likely it would be that if the government or a friend discovered that they'd searched for these terms that they would get in trouble. Uh, and this is a one to five scale. So you can see, uh, for example, that assassination uh, or antiviral is quite high, but uh, innocuous ones, uh, so like crash, are slightly lower. But nonetheless, what they did find is that the Google Trend Search Index fell for search terms that were deemed troubling from both a personal and private perspective. Uh, and I want to reiterate what was found in the survey, which is that the revelations caused a substantial chilling effect relating to users' willingness to enter search terms that raiders considered would get you in trouble with the U.S. government. And what I find particularly interesting about this is that the Snowden revelation seemed to have prompted a chilling effect of search terms not just related to national security, but also embarrassing terms that have nothing to do with uh, the defense of the country. There was a similar study done on Wikipedia articles done by Jonathan Penny. He used a similar method by looking at DHS lists and their associated Wikipedia articles. So here we have the Wikipedia articles for nuclear, dirty bomb, Iraq, Afghanistan. And what Penny found actually was that the, uh, the stifling effect was double what was found in the Google study. Uh, he said, quote, the large statistically significant and immediate drop in total views for the Wikipedia articles after June 2013 implies a clear and immediate chilling effect. I do want to point out though, that there are limitations to these kind of studies. There is no ideal control group here. Uh, it is also measuring traffic, at least when it comes to Google. So you're not measuring an individual to see if the individual changed behavior. It's also difficult to know how many people continued searching for these terms, but they used privacy methods by using the Tor browser, for example. But nonetheless, I think that at the very least, these studies uh, back up an intuitive and I think widespread uh, feeling that revelations do prompt some people to change their behavior. But off the internet, we have some other concerning uh, surveillance activities. We have border searches. You've probably been reading a lot more of these uh, recently. There's been a steady uptick in the number of electronic device searches at the border. And while the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution does protect persons, houses, papers, and effects from unreasonable searches and seizures, there is a border exception to this. And CBP, uh, Customs and Border Protection, reserves the uh, authority to search electronic devices belonging to international travelers coming into the United States, including U.S. citizens, and they do not need uh, probable cause in order to do that. This, uh, this authority is being challenged by the ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who are challenging, uh, challenging the searches in a case called Al-Assad versus Duke. And they're challenging these on Fourth Amendment grounds, but also on First Amendment grounds. Writing in their complaint, I think quite rightly, plaintiffs and the many other travelers who cross the United States border every year with electronic devices will be chilled from exercising their First Amendment rights of free speech and association. And everyone in this room knows that your cell phone and your laptop contains troves of information about your religious or political beliefs, uh, what you've been reading, and so on. So turning away from the border to state and local police, I want to finish my conversation by talking about uh, three pieces of technology that are being used increasingly by state and local law enforcement that I think could be used for surveillance and subsequently to chill First Amendment protected activity. The first is the body camera. In the wake of the Ferguson, Missouri protests in 2014, body cameras became a staple in police misconduct discussions. There was widespread belief that they 
uh, improve police behavior and that they increase police accountability and transparency. I would like to reiterate, though, that body cameras are only as good as the policies that govern them, and that absent good policies, they are a tool for surveillance. There are ways to address this, though. Uh, so two uh, shameless plug, I d did write a paper about body cameras uh, for the Cato Institute that you can read on our website, but I will uh, issue two of uh, my recommendations that I think will help address the surveillance worry. One, uh, police officers should not be able to go back to their station and scour body camera footage in order to conduct surveillance. And secondly, body camera footage that does not show incidents such as arrest, detentions, use of force, or incidents under investigation should be relatively quickly deleted so that police departments do not gather uh, hours and hours and hours of footage. So moving on, uh, I think we are going to be hearing a lot more in the future about aerial surveillance. And some of you might have heard last year that it was revealed that Baltimore police had been using persistent surveillance airplanes for quite a while. Uh, these, these airplanes were originally, or the technology on the airplanes was originally designed for the military, and they were used uh, back in, in Baltimore, but they've also been used elsewhere. The, the company that makes this, uh, this equipment is the unambiguously named Persistent Surveillance Systems. <laughs> they, and what, what I think is troubling, aside from the, uh, the surveillance, is that very few people actually knew that this was going on. The governor of Maryland did not know, that Maryland's congressional delegation did not know, people in City Hall did not know, public defenders did not know. Uh, it's all quite disturbing. What, what it does allow is for analysts to have what the developer describes as Google Earth with TiVo. You get in the airplane, you fly around the city, and it gives you access to an area of about 25 square miles. And what happens is the Baltimore police can pick up the phone and say, hey, we've had a murder at 123 Main Street. It happened at around 2 p.m. And the analyst can then look at 123 Main Street and track the murder suspect back to his home or wherever he's hiding out. That is, uh, of course, welcome to law enforcement. But if it, can, if it can track murderers, it can track protesters. And if it can track protesters, it can also track people attending religious meetings. These are First Amendment protected activities. And to persistent surveillance systems credit, their privacy policy does state that they won't be using their technology to track protesters. But that is a company's policy. It's not law. Uh, and it's uh, of some reassurance, but not much. In 2014, there was a story about this company where they discussed it with Dayton Police Chief Richard Beale. Dayton is another city where this technology has been deployed. And I think uh, Chief Beale's comments uh, should disturb all of us, given that it, it I think, suggests there is a, uh, a, a, a desire to use this kind of equipment. Beale said, I want them, the public, to be worried that we're watching. I want them to be worried that they never know when we're overhead. Uh, this is uh, something it's rather disturbing to hear coming from a police chief in the United States, but there it is. Baltimore could only use this equipment because of a donation from a billionaire couple. It's very, very expensive. Uh, however, a cheaper piece of uh, aerial surveillance equipment that is becoming more and more common is unmanned aerial aircraft or drones. These are much cheaper than military-grade surveillance equipment. Uh, they don't take nearly as long to train someone to fly a drone compared to an airplane or a helicopter. Uh, so I think these are, this is a trend that we should keep a careful eye on. Finally, uh, I want to discuss facial recognition. This got a lot of attention recently thanks to Apple's new release of its, uh, its phone. But 
it's not just a, a private sector technology, of course. Uh, law enforcement are using facial recognition. In fact, uh, about one in two American adults are already in a facial recognition uh, law enforcement database, thanks to the fact that law enforcement has access to DMV uh, facial images. And this, of course, is very attractive technology for law enforcement. It would help them identify missing persons, wanted suspects, but it can also be used to identify innocent people from a distance. And that, I think, undoubtedly could have a very significant chilling effect on First Amendment protected activity. More worrying, though, than just the existence of uh, a database is the fact that this technology could be mounted on body cameras or drones. So ideally, I would, I would hope to see that only violent criminals or wanted suspects or missing persons have their data included in these kind of databases. Uh, innocent people should not have their information in these kind of databases. Uh, the, the fact is that we will probably see this kind of technology on body cameras soon. The Taser, which I think changed its name to, which has changed its name to Axon, released a, a paper earlier this year on the future of law enforcement technology in which they interviewed Captain Daniel Zender, who is the former manager of Las Vegas Police Department's body camera program. And in this interview, he said, the but the fact that I could potentially walk down the street with a camera in real time, scanning faces, doing facial recognition while it's recording, sending that data to the cloud for real time analysis, have that data come back and somebody tell me that guy in the red hat, red shoes that you just passed, he's wanted for a burglary. That type of real time data analysis application would be huge. So I'm not surprised to hear that police are interested in this, but uh, we should make sure that the database does include people with outstanding warrants and not innocent people. So the people at the moment that should be concerned about this kind of stuff are, of course, the targets of uh, America's intelligence apparatus. And at the moment, that includes Muslims, because fundamentalist extremist Muslims are uh, a concern to national security uh, and the national security community. But there's also, I think, a concern for people who regularly engage in protests. We've uh, been seeing a lot of protests in the last year or so, and I can't see that changing anytime soon. But I do worry with body cameras, uh, drones, and facial recognition that protesters will feel stifled. I'll conclude uh, by addressing the if you've got nothing to hide argument. This is a uh, constant refrain that I have to deal with uh, working in the area that I do. And I want to conclude by making two quick points. Uh, the first is you never know who's going to be the target of government surveillance. At the moment, it is extremist Muslims, but a fleeting glimpse of American history reveals that communist civil rights leaders, the ACLU, folk singers, Native Americans have all been the target of government surveillance. And no one knows in five years, let alone 20, who the next target will be. Secondly, uh, and I'll finish on this point, we sh shouldn't think of uh, secrecy as something that implies that you've done something wrong. We want secrecy for things that are totally legal and normal. Uh, I regularly like to highlight this point with this uh, New Yorker cartoon. This is a, a man in bed with his wife with surveillance cameras. And he's saying, if you're not planning to break the law, why should you care? Uh, I think it really illustrates the, the silliness of the objection. Uh, I, I'm going to wrap up here and turn over to Danielle, but I, I welcome your questions in the Q&A period. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matthew. I, uh, <clears throat> about the time that Donald Trump uh, rose up and there was a lot of talk of the alt-right, uh, I had to consult with my fellow uh, Cato people to find out what the hell they were what was going on, 
subsequently, I loaded up my Twitter feed with both uh, the alt-right people and then also uh, some communists, some real communists. And uh, so now I think all of that was maybe a big mistake. So maybe I'll clean that out tonight, Matthew. Thank you for that. Um, but the world is changing, and the forums in which we debate and argue are, is changing. Many of them have become private, and then how it becomes much more problematic because uh, here at Cato, we don't really, in general, First Amendment, you don't want the government vindicating with private actors uh, free speech. Private actors have a right to do it as they wish. So that led us to our next speaker uh, and an article she has written that will appear in the Notre Dame Law Review and which you can get in a play, uh, Cato policy analysis form just outside the door, uh, an article on how the tech companies can act now in a very focused way to um, vindicate free speech. Danielle Keith Citron is the Morton and Sophia Mocked Professor of Law at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law, where she teaches and writes about information privacy, free expression, and civil rights. She is the author of 25 law review articles and a book, Hates Crimes in Cyberspace, which appeared in 2014 with Harvard University Press. She is an affiliate scholar at the Stanford Center on Internet and Society and Yale Information Society Project, as well as a member of the American Law Institute. Am I correct that this is your first appearance at Cato? It is. Well, welcome, Danielle. I'm feeling incredibly fancy. Welcome to Cato. Yeah, you can just come up and talk. It's terrific to be here. I do not have a fancy PowerPoint. Um, but today I'm going to talk about the way in which the European, the European Commission and European regulators have been pressuring the big tech companies um, to remove extremist and hateful speech in a way that risks censorship creep on a global scale. Um, so first, what I'm going to do is just explain the pressure that companies are under and the sort of precipitating events, um, the ways in which uh, the kind of censorship we're going to see is far beyond just extremist and hateful speech. And we can talk about how it's hard to define that and what companies should do. Um, so. Uh, the tech companies like Facebook and Twitter, Microsoft, YouTube, have long understood themselves as sort of protectors of free speech and not for nothing. Um, I've worked with uh, especially Twitter and Facebook on how they respond to stalking, harassment, and threats. And they have moved in the last eight years very slowly and carefully. And in all of our conversations, the First Amendment is always, both doctrine and free speech values, are always part of the conversation. They're always in the room. Uh, and really and truly, when they've moved precipitously to address, let's say, non-consensual pornography, as Eugene talked to us about at lunch, it was really sort of market forces that came together with public events. So remember when Jennifer Lawrence's nude photos were leaked online and the fappening was spread all over the internet. Um, Twitter, among other companies, faced a lot of pressure to address non-consensual non pornography. And after long discussions with advocates, um, had a thoughtful proposal on how to deal with it. Um, but what we're seeing now is companies responding to hateful conduct and extremist speech in a way that is not thoughtful, in a way that is directly responsive and in the shadow of threats by European countries, uh, both rulemakers and the EU Commission, 
uh, to change how they respond, to change their speech policies and their speech practices in, in ways that are really troubling. And so in late 2015, after the terrorist attacks in Paris and in Brussels, um, we saw the EU Commission, as well as EU regulators, make clear that they thought the tech companies were responsible, that the radicalization that we saw offline was their fault. That is, they allowed and harbored online radicals, um, ISIL, ISIS, right? Um, Twitter allowed them to have profiles, and they were to blame. And the clear message from the EU Commission, as well as you know, from member states' lawmakers, was if you don't ensure that hateful conduct and extremist speech is removed immediately, um, you are going to face criminal penalties and civil penalties of, of extraordinary order. Um, and, and tech companies got the message, right? Unlike in the United States, where we have the First Amendment, in Europe doesn't have any analog to the First Amendment. And so they, these weren't idle threats. Um, and they respond, tech companies respond in two incredibly important ways, right? So in, in May of 2016, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Microsoft, and YouTube announced an agreement with the EU Commission called the Code of Conduct on uh, Illegal Hate Speech. And, and in that voluntary agreement, um, the, the four companies agreed that within 24 hours of speech being reported as hateful conduct, um, defined as speech that incites hatred or violence against protected groups, that it would be removed within 24 hours and under the company's terms of service. Um, and the, with six months later, the same companies, uh, the big four, um, announced, this is in December of 2016, announced that they were adopting a shared industry database that would have hashes of ex violent extremist content that they would all contribute to. And what the hashing technology would allow is the immediate um, both recognition and, and removal of extremist material. Um, the Six months earlier, uh, the same companies in talking to the New York Times said that they were incredibly uncomfortable with the idea of an industry database of has, hashed images. And, and what they explained publicly was their concern that terms like extremist, violent extremism is so vague and so malleable and that they were very likely, if you create a honeypot of images that are basically a, a, a blacklist for the internet, uh, they were afraid that state actors would want to contribute content uh, and were afraid to have such a database. But the day before the EU, they, so they announced this, and the next day, the EU Commission uh, releases a scathing report on the four companies' compliance with the hate speech code of conduct. So it's clear, right, we're sort of moving and making concessions to the EU. Um, so you might say, OK, so what's the problem with this? Um, you know, if we remove, let's say, a beheading video from ISIL or a, a, a kill list of, of soldiers, we might, in fact, prevent violence, right? But at the same time, there is a, a, a risk, right? The risk that we're not going to just see the removal of ISIL beheading videos, that we're going to see a sort of creeping censorship uh, in ways that I think are qualitatively different, the kind of pressure that EU countries have put on these companies before. So why do I say it's qualitatively different? Um, in two respects. So um, in the past, European law enforcement, so the EU has this internet referral service, 
and then a few, few years later, Europol adopted it, where they would, at, on an ad hoc basis, report to companies through a specific channel of extremist videos and hateful conduct that they wanted taken down. And how companies responded was to geographically block the content that was reported either by the UK Internet Referral Service, right, or Europol. Um, and so region-wide blo region blocking. But what's different with the adoption of the hate speech code of conduct is that what the companies have changed is that all terms that hate speech reported by anyone, including government actors and groups acting on their behalf, will be removed through their terms of service. And terms of service are the same wherever the platform is accessed. So if a government asks uh, Twitter to remove speech as violative of their hateful conduct code, it will be removed across the globe, right, wherever the platform is accessed. So no longer ad hoc geographically based blocking, block that now through terms of service, both the industry database as well as the hate speech code of conduct are operationalized on a global basis. Um, the second concern is that uh, we know that terms like Extre violent extremism and hateful conduct are, they're vague, they're ill-defined, right? And it's very clear that those terms are, not only could they be subject to censorship creep, but it's happening already. So when um, EU Justice Commissioner Vera Jourova issued that report criticizing the four companies about their failure to comply or remove hate speech quickly enough and enough of it, right? Not fast enough and not enough amount of it. Um, she criticized the four companies for not removing online extremism, radical polarization, and fake news. So she's already, right, in describing compliance with the hateful conduct policy, sort of lumping in fake news, right? And one can imagine that, of course, fake news, right, to a government actor could be, is political dissent, criticism, right, newsworthy content. Um, so it's, the creep is not hypothetical. Right, it's happening. Um, and even if we only, companies only remove, um, let's say, um, genuine propaganda from terrorist groups, I mean, we know that what we're, we're gonna miss are opportunities for an exit ramp uh, for radicals. We have companies like Google's Jigsaw working hard on creating opportunities for counter speech, for, radi you know, for radicalization. Uh, and we're just gonna miss them when we take it down from the internet. Um, so, of course, the question is, well, what do we do about it? Um, and so there are a number of strategies that I suggest in both my small Cato piece as well as uh, much more extensively discussed in my Notre Dame piece, which is, first things first, we need clarity. Uh, companies need to be clear externally and internally about what they mean by hateful conduct and violent extremism with specificity and real boundaries. Real boundaries that make clear that, hey, governments, as you are you know, making requests to remove speech, that we're not going to let you interpret it as political dissent. And paired with that clarity has to be that when governments or people acting on their behalf, sort of advocacy groups acting on government's behalf, when they report either terms of service violation for hateful conduct or attempting to contribute data to the industry database, that it has to be through a dedicated reporting channel. And that the moderators overseeing, right, and, and implementing terms of service need to view those requests with a skeptical eye. 
right, with almost the presumption or default of concern about potential for sort of silencing political dissent, right? So moderators have to be trained, and they have to view it with a lens of skepticism. Um, and connected to the accountability piece, of course, is transparency. Um, so we know that, uh, sort of nudged by EFF and other advocacy groups, that the big platforms do issue transparency reports. That is, they report the extent to which or how many government requests, usually it's for, for data on behalf of law enforcement, of their consumers, their, their user base. Um, but Twitter has, I think, in a way that is exceptional, um, reported the, the countries that have made requests for, to take down extremist terrorist material. And they should do that not only for terrorism, but for hateful conduct. So clear transparency on what government actors are requesting removal for hateful conduct or extremist speech, right? How many requests? Uh, and all, all of these platforms should do it, right? It, it, it allows for dialogue with users, right, with, with um, government actors and advocacy groups. Um, and lastly, one thing I, I sort of suggest um, is that we know that media companies have ombudsmen, right? And part of their task is to think through what's newsworthy, right? Um, of course, they have other tasks as well. But because increasingly, these platforms do, in fact, serve as media companies. Like, where do we go? At least for me, when i breaking news, I'm like, Twitter, I need to see all my journalists and what they're saying. They should have ombudsmen who they bring in-house to think hard about how do we understand news, what's newsworthy, because what seems newsworthy tomorrow maybe seems like a terrorist uh, propaganda today. So we have to think these aren't easy choices. These are all difficult you know, questions. But media, all of these platforms, I think, need to recognize that they are, they are amidst the public discourse, and there's going to be newsworthy information that's going to be taken down. Um, so look, you know, Apple sold to the public when it was defending users' passwords, right, in the San Bernardino, in the, sort of in, the, in that aftermath, that, that they were defending users' privacy. And they made a lot of gains in that grounds, right? And so there's, I think, an opportunity for tech companies to view this as, although it's going to be pressing back on Europe, Europe's not going to stop themselves anytime soon, right? They're, they're achieving too much here. And so there may be opportunities for them to adopt some of these strategies and in a way that their user base would appreciate. So thank you. Thanks very much, Danielle. Um, I thought I would introduce our final speaker of the conference by relating uh, what must surely, in, in my own view, was one of the striking moments of my life um, I was sitting in Rockville at a restaurant with my wife in the middle of a Saturday afternoon and looked at my cell phone, as people tend to do, and across uh, my cell phone there came an alert from the English newspaper, The Guardian. And the alert said, extremist attack in Copenhagen, one man dead, one person dead. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, that something like that, you've got news like that, that it suddenly hits you, that could be someone I know. That could be a person I know. In fact, it occurred to me, it is likely that this is the person I know. Um, as you can see, 
He's here today, so it was not Fleming Rose, my friend in Copenhagen. It was another man that died that day, uh, but died for similar reasons, uh, an attack on a cafe and a meeting um, about, uh, among other things, art, art and free speech. Um, Fleming Rose subsequently it published a book, and uh, prior to that, rather, it published a book with Cato called The Tyranny of Silence, which relates the, re the reasons why and the events why uh, I would have thought that he might have been killed that day, I think in 2012 it was. Um, the Tyranny of Silence is about the Danish cartoon controversy of 2006 and the, the worldwide results of that. And also it's about uh, the, the sense Fleming made out of it and how he came to understand why it was important to have done what he did in those circumstances. And to it's a classic endorsement of freedom of speech and its importance not now and in the past, but also in the future and about the changes that multi-ethnic, multicultural societies, societies in change bring to that. Um, in part, because of that, Fleming was the 2016 recipient of the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty. He's the author of three books uh, on free speech, including The Tyranny of Silence. The most recent one, titled The Possessed, was awarded the Danish newspaper Viken Dysen's Literary Prize in January of this year. He also told me, which I sort of didn't know, he has his own television show on Danish television. So uh, a man of many talents, Fleming Rose. Thank you, John, for this kind introduction, and uh, thank you for putting together a fantastic conference to you and uh, the team. It's very impressive. Um, I'm and my remarks are now the only thing between you and the cold beer outside. Um, I realize that, but um, I will just ask for 15 minutes of your time. Um, the title of my speech or my remarks is Extremist, Extremist Speech and Free Speech. But I will start by taking a hit at the title of my remarks. Extremists, extremist speech and free speech. I think extremist speech is an unfortunate term when it is being used in debates about freedom of speech and its limits. Why is that? Well, because it confuses the boundaries between protected and unprotected speech, between speech that is within the law and speech that is outside the law. Extremist speech means speech that is far removed from the ordinary, but the definition of what is ordinary is always a subjective and political matter. Typically, the same extremist speech will be viewed by some as just and moral, and by others and as unjust and immoral, depending on one's values, politics, and the nature of one's relationship <coughs> with the speaker. Speech that is being labeled extremist doesn't necessarily represent a clear and present danger. It is often about violating social norms 
and challenging the status quo. The abolitionist movement in the United States in the 18th and 19th centuries engaged in extremist speech according to the political and social norms of the time. In fact, any speech that challenges the status quo may be denounced as extremist. This becomes very clear if we look at countries less free than the United States. In Russia, for example, laws prohibiting extremist speech are used to suppress freedom of expression through a very broad and flexible interpretation. Speech classified as extremist and thus prosecuted includes criticism of a governor's overspending, publishing a poem in support of Ukraine, the Jehovah Witnesses movement in Russia, distribu distribution of Raphael Lemkin's essays on the concept of genocide, and peaceful protests against court rulings, just to name a few. Condemning speech as extremist is a way of marginalizing and delegitimizing speech of which we disapprove. That's why Barry Goldwater, in his acceptance speech for the Republican nomination in the 1964 presidential election, turned the extremist argument on its head and said, and I quote, you all know the quote, I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Goldwater's words were a response to New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller's warning against the extremism of Goldwater and his supporters. This goes right to the heart of the problem with concepts like extremist speech. Words like extremism and moderation contain little meaning in and by themselves. Everything depends on the context. For example, do you prefer a moderate defender of fascism or an extreme supporter of liberal democracy? I believe the distinction between extremist and non-extremist extremist speech is very unhelpful in the deep, as a guideline in the debate about the legal limits of free speech. A better way of framing the debate is to make a distinction between dangerous and non-dangerous speech, meaning that speech that represents a clear and present danger of violence or a threat of violence doesn't deserve First Amendment protection while a lot of so-called extremist speech does. In doing so, we avoid violating a fundamental First Amendment principle, namely no viewpoint discrimination. The government is prohibited from engaging in viewpoint discrimination when determining who may speak in public spaces. It means that white supremacists and Nazis can engage in what most of us would define as extremist speech as long as they do not engage in speech that conveys a true threat, which in the words of 
First Amendment scholar Robert Post constitutes a serious expression of an intent to commit a crime or an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group of individuals, end of quote. In short, the state has to intervene in order to prevent and take legal action against dangerous speech. Robert Post uses two constitutional principles, no viewpoint discrimination and the government's obligation to regulate speech that conveys a true threat of violence to explain the difference between the Nazi march, march through Skokie in 1977 and the recent uh, rally by white supremacists and Nazis in Charlottesville, Virginia. In Skokie, a group of people engaged in a parade involving public display of Nazi symbols while marching through a town populated by Holocaust survivors. It was offensive and extremist speech, but it was not dangerous. On the other hand, in Charlottesville, demonstrators marched with guns and there were violent clashes. One person was killed and several were injured. And Robert Post concludes, and I quote, we protect freedom of speech, including extremist speech, in order to strengthen democratic legitimacy. When the state suppresses extremist views, it gives those holding those views little reason to play by official rules. Why should they abide by laws whose enactment they could not influence through their speech and expression? Disagreement in public is tolerable because it displaces physical conflict. To the extent that such communication verges on violence or the threat of violence, it loses the immunity of the First Amendment. People from all walks of life, experts and non-experts, do not hesitate to make sweeping statements and conclusions about the relationship between speech and violence, between extremist speech and extremist action. It's obvious that there is a link between speech and ideology on the one hand and violence on the other. However, the question is what kind of relationship and what impact our understanding of this relationship has on the legal limits of free speech. In most countries, maybe less so in the US, though it may be changing, politicians, lawyers, college professors, people in the media and other opinion makers take it for granted that the link between evil words and evil deeds is pretty straightforward. That evil words will lead to evil deeds and in order to prevent this from happening, we need less freedom of expression. Therefore, I was rather surprised when I some years ago started looking into the empirical foundation for these claims about extremist speech as precursor for violence. I found that there is very little data on the issue. In fact, it's a hugely 
underdeveloped research field. But I learned, to my big surprise, that Weimar Germany in the 20s and beginning of the 30s had hate speech laws intended, among other things, to protect groups against religious insult, Jews among them. It surprised me because the dominating narrative and conventional wisdom, at least in Europe, is that Weimar Germany had too much freedom of expression and that more and tougher laws against hate speech might have prevented the Nazis from coming to power and later on from committing genocide. Most hate speech laws in Europe today are being justified with a reference to this narrative. So what does the relationship between speech and violence look like? Well, first, there is no clear link between hate speech and violence. Hatred of another group isn't necessarily what drives a person to kill. As Susan Benish and Jonathan Lena Maynard put it in a paper about dangerous speech and dangerous ideology, and I quote, both speech and, ide and the ideology that, uh, that underpins it can be dangerous without being hateful, and it can also be hateful without being dangerous." End of quote. People engaged in mass atrocities may think that terror is the only option for resolving a so social problem. Think of the Soviet Union, Communist Party. Or they may be of the belief that violence is honorable and necessary, and that doesn't necessarily includes, uh, include hate. Second, the widespread understanding that we need to criminalize more speech if we want to prevent religious and ethnic violence isn't supported by the available data. Though we have to be aware of the fact that our data still is very limited. The Pew Index on social hostilities involving religion, tracks, sectarian violence, attacks on religious institutions, and terrorist groups motivated by religion across countries in the world. And so far, we have data covering the years from 2007 until 2014. And they indicate that religious violence and conflict doesn't increase with freedom of speech. Quite the contrary. There is less religious violence and conflict in consolidated democracies with a robust protection of freedom of, of the press than in hardcore dictatorships and authoritarian regimes. It is true, though, that according to the available data, there is less religious violence and strife in the most oppressive countries than in more softer authoritarian regimes with limited freedom of the press. For instance, for instance the Soviet Union vis-a-vis -vis today's Russia. I have to add, however, that the most oppressive regimes and most closed societies use a lot of violence and power to silence individuals, ethnic and religious groups. And due to the fact that these oppressive regimes are closed to the outside world, there may be more violence than we know about. Israel, for instance, 
ranks in most reports of Amnesty International and similar organizations as the worst human rights violator in the Middle East. Though this is obviously not the case if you look at the countries in the region. So what can we infer from the observation that there is less religious violence in the most oppressive countries than in countries with limited freedom, though still more violence than in liberal democracies with a robust protection of free speech. I think the lesson is uh, that freedom of speech and tolerance in many ways doesn't come natural to human beings. Therefore, freedom of speech will always be an endangered, an endangered species if we do not cultivate it. It takes a long time to create a culture of freedom and tolerance in which differences of opinion are managed without resorting to violence, threats, and intimidation and criminalization of viewpoints. But if we, in the, in the long run, manage to uphold and protect fundamental liberties like free speech and are able to manage our differences of opinion, culture, ethnicity, and religion in a peaceful way, then the risk of violence and mass atrocities will fade. That's one of the reasons why it's important not to compromise and undermine civil liberties when a country faces security threats and threats of violence. And let me end uh, by relating a piece of personal experience that John alluded to in, uh, in his introduction. One of the fundamental lessons of the Danish cartoon affair, or crisis as some prefer to call it, um, was that almost all or was that all the violence, in fact, erupted in countries that do not enjoy freedom of speech, while there was no violence in countries protecting speech, though this, though this is changing today, but not to a degree uh, that will change the, uh, the picture. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. Uh, now we will have, wrong only in that it's question and answers that's between us and uh, our reception. But I think this, these are very interesting topics and you may wish to ask questions about them. You know the uh, routine. Uh, if you were here earlier, which is please raise your hand, I'll recognize you, wait for the microphone, which should work. And then we uh, pose your question. If you want to pose it to one person, please do so. You can, as you choose, also offer your name and affiliation, if you wish. The gentleman right here in the middle, I try to go around the room during these things for random purposes. Uh, hello? Thank you. I don't. Can I just project? Sounds wonderful. And once it picks up their face, you can actually 
their algorithms will pick it up and you can add them just like that. So their social media has facial, facial recognition. You can pick up anyone. Uh, do you think we would ever get to a point where we're um, more and more comfortable here with less and less private privacy in the, on the internet that we would accept something that we find almost unacceptable or ghastly now? Yeah, I, I think people all over the world are too quick to sacrifice privacy on the altar of convenience and fun. Uh, I, I don't think uh, the United States is necessarily an exception to that. Uh, now, I haven't heard of the, the exact technology you're talking about. It sounds rather creepy to me. Uh, but I, I'll, I'll mention a, a story I did um, hear from Russia recently, which, which is that they have uh, installed facial recognition in CCTV uh, cameras, and those have led to some arrests. Uh, it, it's rather, I, what I would love to know in the story is why you would want to friend someone on Facebook that you've just met on the street and you flashed your phone in front of their face, but that's a whole separate issue. The uh, Something, though, that, that I do want that your, your question reminded me of is that this kind of technology, I think, will be seen more and more in a, in a convenient sense. So so in, in Britain, for example, they're, they're thinking of using it uh, to get rid of turnstiles, that in, you'll just walk into a train station, you won't have to go pay a ticket, you'll just walk through and your face will be scanned. Uh, and sadly, I think many, many people will be totally fine with that. Uh, there are a couple of airlines in the United States that want facial recognition for boarding passes, or at least they're experimenting with it. Uh, so no, it does all concern me. Other gentleman down here, on the right on the aisle. I'm Mike Nelson with Cloudflare, a web security firm. Uh, this is primarily for Professor Citrone, but I'd welcome any other comments. Uh, you mentioned censorship creep and the possibility that what's going on in the U.S. will apply globally to the social media companies. I worry about a different type of censorship creep, which is where we go down this, this, the Internet stack and where it's not just the companies that are providing social media services, it's the companies that provide domain name services, it's companies like Cloudflare that provides encryption and security. It could even be Verizon and the people moving the bits. Or in the most extreme, maybe it's the electric company because they're providing the power that generates the, the bits. How do we stop that? And why is it different <laughs> right, down at down. the social media level than at the pipes and bits level? And if we do end up going that way, is there a way to be more transparent that we've made that step? Thank you so much, Michael, for your question. Um, I think what differentiates the as we go in the layers in the internet or the stack is power, right? So social media companies, there's always alternatives. So that, um, though I rigorously do not want them to cave to Europe, right? Um, but there are, are alternatives. The market provides alternatives. but the more powerful the entity is, there really aren't alternatives to Cloudflare for, to prevent DDoS attacks. There isn't an alternative for the, in many respects, for domain name, right, for hosts, for ISPs, depending on where you are. And that really worries me, right? So, I mean, should we think of the more powerful and more comprehensive the censorship could be? Do we think then of the providers as common carriers? Do we think them of them as utilities that shouldn't be making distinctions based on speech. Um, and what then might happen if we did? Might we have an internet that's sort of broken up and geographic and more balkanized, right? And, and would that be a bad thing? But I think what 
for me, has always distinguished the social media companies who I think should and do and can make decisions about speech, and I hope without tremendous pressure, though I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon, and the different layers of the, of the stack is the power and, and potential for speech elsewhere that in some circumstances, depending, right, there is just isn't an alternative, right, depending on the power of the actor. I can't help but mention at this point that the CEO of Cloudflare within the last month or so uh, was involved in uh, extraordinary events in which he refused service to a particularly noxious website. Um, at the time, on, instead of just doing it, he also wrote a very thoughtful post about it, revealed that he was the son of a journalist and that he had very profound First Amendment uh, worries about what he was doing, right, what he was doing. And then subsequently, a couple of days later, wrote a uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, again, posing questions rather than answering them. Uh, the odd thing is I can best tell you to find him by saying, uh, Googling Cloudflare and Daily Stormer. It was the noxious website that he uh, unplugged, basically, and was subsequently went back to the dark web. So the, we are already there. Yeah. The questions that were just posed is, we're right there. Right. Um, oh, and can I answer one thing about sure. transparency? Just yeah. um, the, the important point about transparency is ever more so, right? So the transparency that the CEO at Cloudflare provided was incredibly important, right? But is it enough, I think, is always the question. Um, and that's something I think we have to work through, how we might operationalize transparency and accountability, and do we need regulation, right? Is it net neutrality that, what, however it is, are we uncomfortable with regulation? How should we go about this? Can the market fix it, right? And what should transparency and accountability look like further down the stack you go? And it's hard to be transparent when the government uses gag orders. Well, that's right, yep, absolutely. Mm, the gentleman on the wall there, um, I believe will be next. Someone over here next. Thank you. My name's Stephen Morris. Uh, my question follows on from the, your answer to the last question, Professor Citroen. The idea, I think, at the time of net neutrality, when it was being, when it was a hot topic before the FCC had determined on it, uh, there was a lot of, I'm going to paraphrase the last administration, talking about the need to treat the internet like a utility. And I got into trouble asking this question offline with one of the earlier speakers, because I wondered about, well, is that not the, the, the big internet companies, the big, the like Alphabet and, and uh, Facebook and so on, they've accepted that. And they've accepted that they get kind of monopoly situation in the US uh, because they are akin to a utility. And as a result, they're engaging in very heavy censorship of their own members uh, in, in a way which doesn't have any transparency, it has no recourse, it's very arbitrary, it's very capricious, and they're, they're, and they're hiding behind the defense of being a private entity, but they actually subscribe to the whole notion in order to get net neutrality that we are very much like a public service and this is very much like a utility. So I'm wondering if you can make a comment on, on whether you think that they're behaving I, I share your view, I share your concern about their caving to Europe, particularly to the EU. And I, I'm, I'm concerned that they're cooking up a deal with, they're prepared to cook up a deal with the EU behind closed doors and, and rest in, in their public face in America by saying, but we're a private company, so you can't really 
uh, have any objection to that. And maybe, so I'm thinking about what um, Professor Volokh at lunchtime was talking about. There are a couple of different models for speech. We look at providers as um, like the telephone company that is hands-off and has bears no responsibility and liability, but also ought to be hands-off about the bits, the conversations are flowing through the pipes or the wires, right, the copper wires back in the day, right? And then there's the publisher model and distributor model. And part of the utility or telephone company model is that you're not supposed to mess with what customers are saying, right? In fact, if the government is going to listen, and they're often viewed as state actors, you need a warrant, right? Um, so, though, of course, the telephone company is not a government actor. Um, but the, so then the question is, as, so perhaps there's some shelter in viewing yourself as a telephone company so that you can provide shelter from the European sensor, sensors, right, that are pressuring you. Um, I'm not sure how this all sort of fleshes out, but it may be that that is the smartest way to get Europe off their backs. Uh, but that will also lead to sort of a breaking down of, of the internet in many respects, that not as a sort of free-flowing bits everywhere, but much more sort of cordoned off by geography in the way that Jack Goldsmith and Tim Wu wrote about 10 years ago. Did you want to say something? But I, in fact, I have a question. Sort of for those uh, um, I think I have a question both for Daniel and, uh, and Matthew. Um, um, about uh, global censorship and uh, the changing nature of the internet. From the outset, uh, there was this very libertarian stretch that you also said about Facebook and Google. And, and we know the Chinese firewall. And we know that the Russians are trying to learn from the Chinese. And they're pushing also, in fact, an act of international law within the UN to uh, recognize territorial sovereignty uh, over the internet. I mean, how, how, how real is this? Uh, uh, will they be able to pull this off? Um, will there be international recognition of borders when it comes to the digital world? And, and, um, and, and uh, where are we on, on this front? I, no, I, I uh, have to plead ignorance on the, the technology and the, the laws in place. I mean, I, I think it is uh, something that, that should keep people up at night, of course, that, that this is uh, an area that isn't clear, but, but I, I don't uh, follow it as a professional uh, uh, course, so I, I don't want to say anything that will reveal my ignorance. <laughs> so what, um, Fleming, you're referring to are the data localization laws, not only in Russia but um, other autocratic countries, as well as European countries, sort of coming to the idea that, that any data that's collected has to be stored within their sovereignty, which means that they are going to be surveilling everyone with the data that they collect. It just gives ever more power to those governments. And I fear that that is precisely, I mean, what we're seeing, that trend of data localization, um, is precisely the move that is so incredibly troubling, especially for their populations and the ways in which we're going to see enhanced surveillance um, and reduced freedoms, abridged freedoms for especially marginalized communities. Um, so I hope that answers it. But I wanted to say, um, take this opportunity to say, um, Fleming, your book, Everyone Should Read, Tyranny of Silence, that when I wrote or had been writing this past spring, my piece, it, it's such a powerful testament um, to the ways in which when we suppress the speech of marginalized people, they become ever more marginalized. 
Um, and the book is a really a moving testament to the ways in which I think you're optimistic in the end about citizenship and speech and how it can make us a sort of much more robust that is in the face of extreme speech, we become much better citizens and human beings. That it's, it's a wonderful book, everyone should read it. I meant to say that in my original comments. Uh, so it's apparently outside, you can buy it. So, I'm not a shill, I promise. He did not pay me to say this. So just one comment about the public utility. That is, uh, that argument, as you probably know, has uh, gotten some traction. And it's coming from a somewhat uh, unusual site, which there was an article on uh, National Review's website. So it, it could be that the uh, in a world where everything is polarized and, in a sense, connected to who's, you know, it could become the argument of the right here. It also happened about the time of the James Damore events at Google and his firing. So a great suspicion about the, uh, both the leaders of the, and their political leanings, that there was going to be a media bias there. So this is what we face. I mean, the, the new deal, the both the Cato argument, libertarian arguments, the First Amendment arguments suggest that having uh, government control uh, the public forum, control private entities, is just it's just not something you. This is a and the kind of faith in the First Amendment that something else is possible. I think uh, the public utility argument does seem to have calmed down for a while, but that doesn't mean it's going away or that it's going to be the normal kind of public utility monopoly argument. Uh, the woman in the back on the aisle whose name is Sarah, actually. <laughs> there we go. Sarah Rigger with uh, the Koch Institute. And I know this got covered just briefly uh, by Professor Volokh, but wanted to hear this panel speak a little bit to threats to Section 230 in the name of countering violent extremism and fighting sexual harassment and what, what implications that has for speech in the future. I'm going to get in trouble, so I don't mind talking about it. Uh, so Ben Wittes and I have written a piece called um, The Internet Will Not Break, uh, denying bad Samaritans um, the Section 230 immunity. And I say that because Section 230, and, and Mike is in the audience, uh, Godwin, um, and he can tell me if I'm wrong, but the Decency Act, the Communications Decency Act, right, of 1996, which is where Section 230 is a part of, most of it gets struck down um, because it's, it was a deeply uh, disturbing right act that was uh, antithetical to free speech it was the whole idea was to criminalize porn on the internet can you imagine you know like protecting children that we would have no porn that seems crazy now to us um i promise i'm not saying anything about myself but uh you know the decency act was meant to incentivize um, good samaritans to monitor block prevent address illegality Right, and what it had has it has been interpreted. I think in some ways it's been incredibly important over the past twenty years. I think Professor Volokh is right. It's given us Twitter and Yelp, and so I've argued in my book, Hey Crimes in Cyberspace, that it's been it's it's been a blessing, right? But at the same time, it gives license to to act bad actors, like revenge pornographers, who get whose sites explicitly encourage the posting of individuals' nude images without their consent and torment people. People lose their jobs, right? They're terrified 
Um, they're subject to physical harm from strangers who come up to them and say, I saw your ad or I saw your photo. I hear you're interested in anonymous sex. They get to, revenge pornographers can gleefully say, I'm totally immune from liability. And they claim shelter under a statute was called the Good Samaritan blocking right, of offensive material. I think it's time to rethink it, but I, we have to rethink it in a smart way. And I think we should deny bad Samaritans and give shelter and safe harbor to the good Samaritans. I don't mind. I'm going to get in trouble. It's cool. No, nobody. <laughs> I always wonder about people that come and don't have, you, it, maybe it's not a libertarian view or something. No one ever gets into any trouble. No. <laughs> no tomatoes will be thrown at me today, you're saying? No, nah, not in this none. audience. Let's, I'm going through my random, on the aisle there. Try to get all sections represented mm -hmm. here, even though that has nothing to do with anything. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Phil Harvey, DKT Liberty Project. I'm wondering what the panel would feel uh, is the appropriate uh, level of restriction on speech. Uh, I'm not thinking of the internet now so much, but just basic national laws. Uh, in the United States, we have about five areas that are permitted to be outlawed in, in various forms of speech. Are there other countries that have, have this better? Uh, in what, in fact, would you consider uh, to be uh, the three or four or five things that it's appropriate and proper for governments to outlaw? Well, I guess I'll start. I, I think actually the United States is among, if not the best country in the world when it comes to free speech. I think that if you look to Europe especially, there are a whole host of uh, kinds of categories of speech that would be that are le totally legal here, that are illegal there, and oftentimes illegal for really bad reasons. Uh, so I'm thinking mostly of countries that have bans, for example, on Holocaust denial or even uh, display of swastikas, things like this. My, my own view is that there should be as few restrictions on speech as possible. And even when I hear the, uh, the, the categories of speech that we do criminalize, uh, I, I get worried about the, the definitions getting twisted. So incitement is one area, for example. I, I of course, uh, am, am not uh, saying that it should be legal to deliberately incite violence in a, in a mob or something, but but I, my own default boring libertarian Cato reaction is that we should have as few uh, limits on speech as possible. Well, I think that... Is it on? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I think there are three fundamental legitimate limitations on speech. And the one is, as Matthew said, incitement to violence. Uh, the other is libel. And the third one is protection of privacy. And then you can discuss the details. Uh, but I, f I think the fundamental question that you have to ask is, what are the minimal limitations you need in order to be able to live in peace? Um, and the answer to that question has very much to do with a cultivation of a culture of freedom. Um, and for instance, in Europe right now, we experience uh, a lot of terrorist attacks, which of course makes a lot of people concerned and uh, afraid. And there is an appealing to politicians to put 
new limitations on uh, on speech. Um, but as I indicated from from the data I I, I quoted, uh, it's not a solution to, um, to 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 limit fundamental freedoms in order to um, secure or to have a, to have security in in the long run, uh, and and that fundamental understanding and knowledge is really lacking. Um, and I believe that uh, that globally we are in for a very hard time when it comes to freedom of expression. Um, and I think I think most governments in the world in the years ahead will try to find ways uh, to to limit freedom of expression, especially, especially as a reaction to uh, the digital technology, which in many ways is similar to the invention of uh, the printing press in the uh, 15th century that in fact, also in the beginning, looked as a tool, a very liberating tool, but it triggered counter-reactions and, and the Catholic Church uh, index on banned books uh, and all kinds of severe censorship regimes, witch hunts, uh, burning on stakes, uh, 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 killing uh, blasphemers, and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so uh, the, the fundamental struggle will be on behalf of civil society. It is civil society and and uh, non-government institutions that will have to uh, stand up, because the impulse will be to um, to go in the direction of, uh, of of more limitations in the years ahead. Did you want to say something? Oh, please let it be the United States that's exporting norms and values, right? So uh, I'll leave it at that. Can I, I just, I would just uh, say, sorry, yeah, uh, just a, <clears throat> something that, that Fleming uh, said rem wanted, reminded me to, to say something, which is it is true that that these conversations arise after terrorist attacks or, or events like we see in Charlottesville, and I just I just hope that we don't give these unmitigated pathetic losers the victory of uh, eroding constitutional freedoms. I just think it's it's really uh, dangerous for us to think. Uh, that way in the wake of what are un un undoubtedly tragic circumstances, but uh, we shouldn't be so um, eager or willing to sacrifice constitutional freedom so freely. But, it, but in fact, it is going on in Europe, and, and, and uh, in now, in, uh, I think, in every European country except Norway, it's now a criminal offense to glorify terror, mm -hmm. which is an expression of an opinion, and there is this very, uh, I mean... You will, you will maybe understand that uh, on September 12, 2001, a French cartoonist published a cartoon with the Twin Towers and uh, um, the planes coming down, and it said, you know, we all dreamt about it, uh, Hamas did it. That was a factual error, but nevertheless, he was in fact convicted for glorification of terror, and, it, and, and the conviction was confirmed by the European Court of Human Rights. Um, uh, France uh, is more or less uh, living in a in a in a permanent situation of uh, emergency, where where the law enforcement powers have 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 a lot of authority to um, to to detain people, to make searches, to surveil, and so on and so forth. And uh, Daniel talked about you know this pressure from the European Union to take down. Hate, uh, hate speech, and and uh, and likening uh, hate speech and fake news, 
the uh, the antitrust uh, minister in the Italian government uh, is pushing for establishing government bodies um, uh, participating in the process of verification of the truth. Uh, they want to establish government bodies to decide what is the truth and what is not. Uh, and this is, you know, 25 years after the Berlin Wall came down and you had a Ministry of Truth in, uh, in the Soviet Union. It, it, it sounds very similar. I want to get into trouble by mentioning the competition here. Uh, Professor Volokh some time ago wrote the First Amendment section for the Heritage Guide to the Constitution, which you can find online. And in that, he uh, lays out not only a very concise understanding of the First Amendment, but all of the uh, limits to it, the uh, exceptions that have been made to it. Uh, and so it's a great place to pick up uh, his views. And also, it's, it's solid law, of course. Uh, and it's online. You'll just have to, to Google those things. I would say, I think, uh, probably what would be in that article, a couple of kinds of limitations that uh, still exist but yet don't exist, would be fighting words, which is uh, still sort of good law, but no one thinks it's going to be applied as a limit on speech. And then obscenity, which is much more, somewhat more complicated because it was sort of decentralized rather than struck down. Uh, it certainly has no national meaning any, anymore. Um, but would you agree with that? Yeah, okay. And there's lots I of speech that just does not have First Amendment salience. That so fraud, antitrust, conspiracy, yeah, yeah. right? So not everything. If you think of the First Amendment like a house, uh, and thus the strict scrutiny and treatment or intermediate intermediate scrutiny will be treated to that speech. Not everything walks in the house. So, but that's not to say that we don't have a robust commitment for all the good reasons we do to speech. Gentleman, right there in the second row. Right there. What, one or the other. I don't know how you divide it up. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Vanya Delapchev. I'm a participant of the Fund for American Studies Capital Semester Program and also student of Professor Samples. Um, Professor Samples, I'm glad that you have so many speakers with European background. I feel a lot more comfortable as someone coming from Europe, from Serbia. Um, but And also I have a question regarding to Europe, particularly for uh, Professor Daniel Citron, um, uh, about the uh, one you were talking about the communitarian law about the European Union affecting the modern technology and also freedom of speech. Uh, but one case which particularly interests me is not the one that is actually on the level of the code of conducts, but actually on the level of directives. Uh, particularly, that was the case that the European uh, Court of Law of the European Union in 2014. Uh, with the Google Spain and Spanish Agency for Data Protection, where actually there was a decision that uh, the search data engines were considered considered um, responsible for actually having published the informations, personal informations on a third side website or the publisher. So I want your comment on this, whether it's feasible, what's the ultimate, ultimate consequence, whether something actually at least something may be useful in this whole uh, decision, but generally, I just want your comment on this. Thank you. In case um, that viewed Google as a processor of information, and then in the court instructs Google 
to be the adjudicator of speech that's not newsworthy and that should be de-indexed, which I find incredibly troubling, right? So we're going to externalize to a company to make those decisions. And uh, Professor Volokh during break we're, and I were talking about how it's so discordant uh, with the U.S. approach, that is the right to forget truthful facts that are no longer newsworthy today but were newsworthy 10 years ago. Um, we certainly don't want government to call those balls and strikes. But we are seeing, um, I wish I could, I don't want to call Eugene up here, but uh, we're seeing sort of a very modified, in some pockets, where courts are expunging records in ways that it resembles a right to be forgotten. And certainly in the Fair Credit Reporting Act in the United States, um, we say that a credit report can't include or shouldn't include a bankruptcy that's over seven years. So in some, we do have a really modified, but thankfully incredibly narrow way to think about the right to be forgotten. It's real, almost antithetical to the way we think about truthful private facts. Um, and. Uh, we'll see, I mean, what the pressure is, I think, from Europe is to, to export the right to be forgotten across the globe, much in the way that we see, that I write about, with pressure in the code of conduct for illegal hate speech is to externalize and, and ensure that it has a global impact. And certainly France and other countries are trying to ensure that companies not only comport with the right to be forgotten in France or in Europe, but anywhere a French citizen, for example, could be located in the United States. So they're trying to externalize uh, and render global the right to be forgotten, which where it's going to be a struggle. Uh, I hope we don't. <laughs> So we've run out of time, but we don't have to stop all, if you still have questions. We're going to go to the reception now, and you can pose them to each other, to our speakers. Um, but first, a couple of notes. Uh, I would like to thank my class from the Fund for American Studies capital semester coming today, the class on the Constitution. I hope you have discovered something, apart from the fact that other speakers could be more interesting than me. Uh, <laughs> The, uh, I would also, and this is very heartfelt, like to thank the conference staff, particularly Mackenzie Johnson, who was responsible for this. Uh, uh, you people have no idea what it would be like if I had to do this, and uh, that, that uh, try to keep track of all the details. You may have sensed by now that there would be real problems. Fantastic job from conference and uh, our interns, and uh, Will Duffield, my research assistant here at Cato. Uh, I've made this a, a real success. I hope you have enjoyed it. We are now going to go to the uh, reception, which will be in the Winter Garden. The restrooms are on this level. Uh, the Winter Garden is here on the first floor. You were there for the earlier breaks. Uh, and there are also restrooms down below. Down, you can go down the spiral stairs and back along the wall. But I, at this point, as we end this, I think we've had a great conference today, and I'd like to uh, ask you to join me in thanking a very good panel. <laughs>